Okay, it's time to move on to our next speaker, who is Richard Lloyd Anderson. I think Dan Peterson described Richard Anderson's book on the Three Witnesses as one of the most faith-promoting books he ever read. So, uh, so now's your chance to pick that up if you want. Dr. Anderson received his PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and is Professor Emeritus of Ancient Scripture at BYU. He is Senior Research Fellow at the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Latter-day Saint History at BYU, where he taught New Testament and Church History for four decades, with doctorates in both law and history. He is a respected specialist on the lives of Joseph Smith and of the Book of Mormon Witnesses. And again, he has a number of books back in the, in the bookstore. So with that, I'm going to turn the time over to, to Dr. Anderson. I have to unload my briefcase before I unload on you. <laughs> I visited with Matt Brown and heard that he did an incredible PowerPoint uh, presentation, and uh, I simply pray for the Spirit of the Lord, so he'll have the power behind the PowerPoint. You can tell I'm a faithful Latter-day Saint because I'm going to start with an apology. I did uh, uh, hear early but prepared late, so I've got a, an outline. And uh, I wish I had decided to speak on explaining the witnesses instead of ex explaining away the witnesses. So uh, my topic is what other people are doing, explaining away, and uh, I'm trying to get behind that and try to, try to understand about where, uh, where they're coming from and what needs to be said. I thought I was getting a reverberation. Work it as close as you can and I'll deal with the reverberation. Okay. Uh, back row, is this coming through okay? Because uh, I'm <coughs> speaking in a bathtub, basically, the, my perception. Okay. The problem as I see it, I had a law school professor that said, uh, I'll win any argument if you let me define the problem. <laughs> I have in my files over the years about 50 so-called interviews with uh, Oliver Cowdery. Interview is a contact, basically, where they said something about the Book of Mormon. Might be detailed, might be a speech, might be something he wrote, and so on. In the case of David Whitmer, a long interview. So here are the statistics about, uh, did I say 50, 30 for Oliver Cowdery? Uh, minimum of 70 for David Whitmer. About uh, 50 for Martin Harris, and a minimum of 40, probably one and a half times that much. So I got about 200 times when one of the witnesses said, I did sign the statement, the statement means what it says, 
I saw the angel, I saw the plates, or in the case of the eight witnesses, I handled the plates. So, 200 very positive and specific statements in many cases. And uh, I'm dealing today with about eight or ten documents, in other words, five percent. And the question is, do you believe the 95 percent or do you believe the five? There's a paradox of this, and that is the uh, people that are attacking the witnesses and have in the past are basically saying, well, they just dreamed it up. It's a matter of their uh, exerting too much faith. And that's the paradox, because uh, I never would have <clears throat> set out this morning if I hadn't believed the uh, special event center was here, hadn't had faith that there was a crowd to speak to, etc. Columbus started on faith, Edison started on faith, and uh, it's that faith that is called a hypothesis in the scientific method. You have to conceive of something in terms of imagination and uh, logical extension, extrapolation, before you ever really verify something beyond your little reality. And so uh, we're really dealing with that uh, basic issue below. I was talking with Scott this morning for, for a minute, Scott Gordon. Uh, Flash Gordon was my childhood hero, but <laughs> now he was Scott. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was explaining that uh, Socrates got up and defended himself before they asked him to take the hemlock. And uh, two disciples, Xenophon and also Plato, wrote their approximation, reconstruction of what he said, and they're both called in Greek apologia, and um, so I, I said to Scott, not only does apologia really mean to answer or defend, transitioning to a verb, but it, in the case of Socrates, he tried to distinguish between the charges that were the verbal attacks upon him and the real reasons below. And um, if I wanted to work with that, I would just make an analogy, which could be quick, that I spent about 40 years talking about New Testament, collecting books on New Testament. Uh, I'm doing total church history right now. I have faith that uh, I'll make the circle and come back and use many of those books. But I can't tell you how many books I have bought on ter in terms of uh, the reality of the resurrection. You know, is there really a intellectual argument or is there empirical proof that would establish the resurrection? Well, if I go into a courtroom and watch testimony and see a jury believe or not believe the uh, various witnesses, I don't really distinguish that between the evidence for the re resurrection or the evidence for the witnesses. But basically, the, the field of New Testament studies is in the throes of this self-reappraising agony. Can we really believe? And uh, so, many, so many people write books about the resurrection ignoring uh, the miracles of Jesus' life, scores of them, ignoring the personal testimonies of the gospel writers, 
two of those who had seen and felt Jesus in the resurrection, ignoring the speeches in the book of Acts of, of Peter and John, who had been there in the resurrection, and Paul, who had seen Jesus uh, in a vision afterward. And so uh, what is driving this is really not evidence at all. What's driving it is skepticism and the playing out of that skepticism by picking pieces of evidence. For instance, very quickly, one uh, uh, verse in Matthew said that Jesus appeared uh, on the mount, and uh, but some doubted. And you pick that out and think, well, you know, there's a resurrection appearance, so they weren't really sure of it. But then you read the next verse, and then it says, literally in Greek, and Jesus walked toward them. Well, that was their initial fright, which other, uh, which other resurrection accounts describe and document. But the verification of the reality of Jesus physically is afterward. But that one little thing, that one little tail wags a big dog. And so, um, I apologize for the topic in a way. Because you can really read the 95% and that is such consistent and powerful evidence. And uh, I just want to go on record saying that I think it isn't the evidence that I'm really talking about. There's a motivation of lack of faith underneath or lack of open-mindedness. All right, if you go back to the first reaction to the witnesses of the Book of Mormon and the Palmyra Reflector, ridicule is uh, pretty standard character assassination. You can't take these people seriously. And uh, they are claimed to be liars or, or uh, really stupid, uh, easy to convince people and superstitious. And uh, if you've read uh, Anna Mormon uh, approaches to the witnesses in the last five years, uh, many of them are saying, they're not really many, and I, I'm not, I'll be glad in questions to name people and so on, but I really try to, to work with issues. But the, the issue here is that people work with this idea that, that uh, uh, my approach in the uh, Little Red Book or the Big Blue Book before that, first edition, investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses, that approach says honesty and credibility uh, was was the hallmark of these people in their community. Now I have to back off and say in the case of Martin Harris, uh, people said that he was terribly gullible because he believed the Bible and took literally the, the prophecies. So uh, credibility had a religious exception. He was credible in business, but he wasn't credible in his religious attitudes. And. Uh, so anyway, I'm told that uh, credibility and uh, character and honesty are all irrelevant. If you're going to be deceived, you can be an honest person and be, de be deceived. So we don't even talk about that. Well, if Mark Hoffman somehow uh, got out and uh, offered us a new set of documents, credibility might be an issue. Uh, <laughs> if somebody is a known liar, uh, you're not even going to get to first base in, in taking it seriously. And so I say that these, these are really big issues. And if you've uh, crossed that huge chasm of having believable people 
who are saying, we saw the plates, we saw the angel, or we handled the plates, uh, then you, you've really come a long way. All right, uh, intelligence. Oliver Cowdery's uh, law partner said that he had never met anybody that was so well informed. And, and this man went on to have a, a career in politics, a success, successful career in, in law, uh, did a, a really fine county history that's not a bunch of blurbs, but real history, and uh, wrote two paragraphs on early pioneer lawyer, lawyers in his county. And uh, his name is William Lang, and he, he uh, apprenticed in Oliver Cowdery's law office. And he said he had never met a person that was so well informed on so many well on so many different subjects. He sincerely admired the man's mind and his capabilities. Well, if I tell you that I've <coughs> seen the Northern Lights in Utah, that's a fairly improbable statement, but it might be true sometime. Uh, you might say, well, does Anderson know the difference between uh, the appearance of Northern Lights and the appearance of Salt Lake City in the distance? And uh, Intelligence, perception is a great issue too. And these are really defined as out of the way that's irrelevant. It's certainly not irrelevant. We have substantial people bearing substantial testimonies. Uh, a variation of this, of their bad character, uh, is quoting Joseph Smith in their bad character. <laughs> and uh, Joseph Smith has, I have to smile at it because we've all been in this mood and some of us have acted on it, and others have had better judgment. But anyway, Joseph Smith says, uh, uh, basically, uh, judgment for judgment. I mean, he puts this at the beginning of this editorial in, in, in the Elder's Journal in 1838, and he's just had it with people that want to leave the church and give him a bad time, and uh, all Missouri is uh, conspiring to throw the Mormons out, and he is in a defensive mood and, and mode for sure. But he calls uh, Mark, call, calls uh, David Whitmer uh, a, a dumb ass, but he's talking about Balaam's ass in the in the uh, Old Testament, uh, speak, uh, speaking the truth in, sp in spite of himself, and he has an epithet for Martin Harris. I don't really recall that he says anything about Oliver Cowdery, except he does feel betrayed. And so Joseph Smith did label the witnesses with, with those labels. And so if you quote Joseph Smith, it looks pretty impressive. These people weren't to be believed. And Joseph Smith said, so don't, so don't believe their testimony of the Book of Mormon. Well, that's a neat uh, reversal of reality, uh, just based on circumstances. But that, that plays into the whole issue. I'm told in some books that they were imposters. They're part of a conspiracy. Well. Joseph Smith went out of his way to alienate them as they left the church. The church in Far West went out of, out of their way to alienate uh, John Whitmer. Lyman Johnson as an ex-apostle was along for the ride out. And uh, David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery. And they were told, you're not welcome in town. Get out. Well, it happens in many frontier com communities and uh, Latter-day Saints uh, are not insulated from emotion, emotions, trying to explain instead of justify. But anyway, if you're run out of town and told that the people that uh, you were with don't want you around anymore, and uh, 
some rather extreme charges are made about your honesty on the way out, uh, you would have a pretty uh, strong reaction. And so you get into this set and subset of somebody accusing, counter-accusing, and, and escalating a whole argument. And these, these emotions actually went on. And the witnesses are victimized by this, and Oliver Cowdery stayed out of the church partly because he waited for an apology which never came. But in spite of that, he said, I know. So, uh, quoting Joseph Smith uh, negatively is only to highlight the conflict that these witnesses bridged themselves and, and uh, said for sure they had seen the plates in spite of all that. Now the current approach. Uh, Basically, they're saying these people couldn't help themselves. They were culturally impaired. In other words, everybody around them believed in, in ghosts, apparitions, and uh, the whole community, communities were out money digging. Uh, Alan Greenspan wouldn't have had a very good projection if all that were true. Somebody had to keep the economy going. and. Uh, that's such an exaggeration to say, as one author does, lumping all the witnesses together. Well, people, some people, actually the logic of this, I wish I had somebody that had a, had had a basic college logic course to diagram this, but you can see the holes in the argument. Some people in the community did money digging. Some people in the community saw ghosts and apparitions. Uh, therefore, all the witnesses who came from that community are tainted. I mean, there's the jump with with that apparition and uh, many dig digging tag, and therefore you couldn't believe them because they're all superstitious. Uh, well, it's a, a, a huge jump and a really uh, stupid approach. I mean, you've got to look at the ind people individually, and uh, all I can say is that every one of these witnesses, I. Uh, Matt Brown may have done something of this this morning, but every one of these witnesses responded to that. Uh, in my red book is a, a documentation of da David Whitmer um, being present because he, he wouldn't let the, let the manuscript of the Book of Mormon go out of his hands when the RLDS committee came and uh, was uh, trying to do uh, an edition of the Book of Mormon corrected by what they thought was the original manuscript. It was the printer's. And uh, David, a, a, a man who was pretty secular and uh, skeptical, said to Whitmer to his face, well, you might believe that you saw uh, the plates and the angel, but he said, he, he, he said uh, you're probably deceived. <laughs> Joseph III said David Whitmer stood up to his full height, which was nearly six feet, and said, no, sir. I was not deceived, I saw, I heard. And he said it with such force that the man was uncomfortable and left the room and Joseph III left the room with him and said, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, this is uh, preposterous that somebody could believe that, but he said one thing is sure and that is that David Whitmer is certain that he saw and he heard. Well, every one of those men had that experience. David H. Cannon, uh, brother to uh, George Q, uh, president of the St. George Temple in his later years, he told in, in his recollections of his life of going 
I seem to be getting feedback. Am I getting echo? Can't hear it. Okay, no, thanks. All right, fine. Uh, the uh, he, he visited Martin Harris in, in Kirtland about 1860, and he said, "I asked him, is there any possibility that you were deceived?" Uh, for David Whitmer, the best interview for you to go to is James H. Moyle. Many of us know Henry D. He was the father of Henry D. Moyle, um, our, our uh, first uh, our counselor in the first presidency to President McKay. And James H. Moyle was just out of uh, law school in Michigan, and he said he just really worked David Whitmer over to try to see anything that would be holes in the story. And he was candid, he wrote in, the, wrote in his journal, I expected him to be more physical. All right, now that's the nub of, the, of what, what we're talking about. David always said he did not handle the plates. And for Oliver and for Martin, you can get statements where they said they did handle the plates. Those two were translators, that's interesting. I can't go beyond that statement. But David uh, simply said the angel was there, he described the various kinds of plates on the table. He described the Urim and Thummim, sort of Laban, etc. And he did so very specifically in interview after interview, very freely responding to people's questions, and often writing the newspaper or making a comment in a letter afterwards saying they got most of it straight, but these are the things that were wrong. He had a very settled and detailed picture of what he saw and described that and said, no, he was not deceived. Well, uh, you might say that's uh, simplistic. The man, if he's going to be deceived, isn't going to know it. I don't think that's true. I have a brother-in-law that uh, I've talked to years, over the years until he's tired of the conversation, and I am. But he, he says anybody that is hypnotized, he's in clinical psych, certainly knows that he was in and out of that experience. Uh, I've been deceived in business plenty of times. Sheriff of Soda Springs, Idaho, sent 20 bucks back to two stupid missionaries that uh, believed a guy's hard luck story and he was really a con man. But uh, in terms of perceptions, when you really think about, reflect uh, about things, if you're careful, analytical, these people were, they knew, they knew whether they were deceived or not. So what we're doing now is really working with this uh, uh, concept of, uh, of how current uh, literature on Mormonism is trying to transfer the experience of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon into a subjective experience. They call it a visionary experience. Uh, David Whitmer would have agreed. That's what he told James H. Moyle, that it was a visionary experience. He had a vision. And then the dichotomy is set up, you know, in terms of definitions right at the outset. Uh, do you have a vision or do you see a real experience? Well, you've answered the question right there. If uh, you want to set up that dichotomy, you don't need to discuss anything further. You've already defined yourself out of a, out of a real experience. So somebody really has to believe that there is a hereafter, that there is a possibility of that hereafter speaking to us. There is indeed a possibility of a world beyond this world, which isn't really very hard for me to imagine. 
when I know so many worlds and subworlds of, of, of uh, biology, astronomy, uh, bacteriology, and so on that are not apparent to me. There are worlds beyond mine, and these people come to tell us something about that, but the explanation is that they just talk themselves into the experience. So let's uh, deal with that. Martin Harris is probably uh, the, the, the first person to start with. Uh, and uh, he talked about his experience in terms of the eye of faith. I have to believe that people remembered that accurately. But uh, John H. Gilbert is, is the person that t says most about this, and I'd like to deal with Gilbert just, just a bit. He was the compositor of the Book of Mormon, and he said he asked Martin Harris, did you really see the, see the plates with your, your natural eyes as you're talking to me? He said Martin Harris looked down at the floor. <clears throat> Joseph Smith looked down at the floor very often in contemplation. I don't know that that means that he was ashamed. But he thought about his answer as the point, and then he said, I saw this with the eye of faith. Well, Martin Harris had to have faith in the experience. He separated himself from the other two. That was his Achilles heel, that he hadn't, didn't have enough faith. And maybe he was trying to explain to Gilbert how it happened. And Gilbert took that in more, in more simplistic terms. Uh, I, all I can say is that when I deal with Martin Harris and his own statement, I want to make a comment on that in a moment. Uh, this is what he actually wrote to a person who inquired. I received your favor. In reply, I will say concerning the plates, I do say that the angel did show to me the plates cont containing the Book of Mormon. He saw the angel, he saw the plates. So whether you talk about eye of faith or not, if you take what Martin Harris actually said and then start to measure all these other things by that and see wh wh how consistent they are, sometimes witnesses are getting misquoted, sometimes they're quoted accurately but not with a, a realization of their whole experience, and I feel that this fits within that dimension. And I just want to say something about the witnesses, witnesses of the Book of Mormon in, term, in terms of evidence. When uh, Lyndon Cook came out with his book on the uh, interviews, uh, David Whitmer interviews, uh, I was sad because I didn't do it. I'll have to <coughs> admit that. <laughs> you know, it was in, in my files for, for 25 years, and, and I was going to do it next year. Uh, so Lyndon at least really got something out, 80% of maybe the interviews. But then the other problem that I had was that what are people going to do with these interviews? Now they'll see David Whitmer saying, I handled the plates in some interviews and I didn't handle the plates in other interviews. That's not David Whitmer's problem because he wrote letters making that absolutely clear where he stood. And, but there is a problem of transmission of information. And then, you know, just simple matters of copying. He wrote a letter to the uh, Kansas City Journal in 1881 after they published an interview saying, no, I did not say, uh, oh, what is it? He's talking about the seer stone and they goofed on something and he said, what I really said was sunstone. Well, <laughs> they got it wrong twice. <laughs> And so all I can say is that, that 
you need to control every interview with one of the witnesses by first-hand personal statements if you've got them and then the correlation of the body of evidence in second-hand statements. And if you t get something that is really atypical, it doesn't blend with what other evidence is coming from the witness, be, be skeptical of, uh, of that. And so uh, we really do need, need to deal with first-hand first evidence as much as possible, and we've got uh, many statements where the witnesses actually wrote their experience or commented on it directly. Um, here is a man who has uh, just written a book experimenting with how Joseph Smith projected all of his experiences in the Book of Mormon, which is uh, a key to his psychology instead of a key to ancient America. And so the uh, uh, hypothesis here is on the witnesses, and he works with two things. They might have had, and these are his words, they might have had a hallucination. And he has some statistic that uh, some psychologist says 90% of the people in, in the world have, have had a hallucination. Well, just take that for granted. What did they see? Did they see a, a deer in the headlights instead of a cat when they were tired, driving and tired at night? Uh, this is a, a unique type of hallucination to be in broad daylight, to have a conversation with an angel, to hear the voice of God. And the whole thing is too complex for that uh, type of explanation. But th the man that advances this says of his own theory, it is easier to explain the phenomenon generally than it is to discover principles that are at, in play in specific cases due to the subtlety of the unconscious coordination of experience. In other words, I'm just guessing. And uh, he says probably, might have, and so on, with hypnotism and uh, that theory too. Now let's go to some hard documents here. I'm going to uh, uh, go to uh, a, a, a letter that is typically quoted. And I say this is one of my 5% documents. The letter is by a man who left the church the letter is dated 1838, about May. Uh, Dan Vogel has put out a, a five-volume uh, collection of documents. Uh, his uh, commentary often is very good on a document. If you, if you keep him on the facts instead of the interpretation of the facts, uh, it's very worth looking, looking in his documents. And this is a letter from Stephen Burnett, and it is in, in one of his five volumes. Um, Stephen Burnett is on his way out of the church. He's concluded the Book of Mormon isn't true. He's writing to Lyman Johnson, who was his business partner. They both lost money, and he starts to gripe and complain about that to begin with. So, you know, the motivation is basically hostility. And then he said, I went to the Stone Church, which is the temple in Kirtland. This is the year 18, uh, 1838, did I say 37? When I came to hear Martin Harris state in a public congregation that he never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination. Now really that's the jump there. He only saw the plates in a vision. Well, David, David Whitmer said he only saw the plates in a vision. 
Does a vision comprehend the reality of an angel being there in the midst of glory, an angel putting his hands on your head and ordaining you to the Aaronic priesthood, as Joseph and Oliver said? That's a dimension of reality we don't know. Christ coming in a closed room. Uh, vision does not automatically mean subjective, non-objective, ex non-real experience. And so, Martin Harris does stand up and say, I have to believe he said something like this, that he saw the plates in a vision. But then Burnett said, or imagination. Now that's 1838, and that's not a new discovery. There was a man named Desert Booth who left the church in 1831 after he went to Missouri, and uh, he has his issues with Joseph Smith. Some of them are more serious than this one, but he says that Joseph said Missouri was the promised land, and he had a better farm in Ohio than any land he found in Missouri. <laughs> if you live either in Ohio or Missouri, you can laugh at it. But anyway, um, Ezra Booth says there's such things as witnesses of the Book of Mormon. This is his 1831 letters to his, pa to his pastor, uh, or a pastor, and they're published in the Ohio Star, and then they're picked up in 1834 by, uh, uh, by E.D. Howe, writing his Mormonism Unveiled. So that's the easiest place to get them. And he says, these witnesses stand up in the midst of large congregations and testify that they saw the plates. But he said, I had the privilege of finding uh, the revelation that uh, told them they could see the plates. Oddly enough, that was not published in the Book of Commandments, but it was published in the 1835 Do Doctrine and Covenants. And it is also uh, in the uh, Kirtland uh, Revelation book. So we, we know that the manuscript was there early, and for some reason it didn't get into the Book of Commandments. But Booth says, when I looked at this revelation, this is section 17, it tells the, tells the witnesses that if they have faith, they can see the plates. And he, so he says, that's the secret. I'm going to read his words. But after all, okay, let me read the whole sentence. They were informed they should see and hear those things by faith. And they should testify to the world as though they had seen and heard. Okay, if they're going to see them by faith, then they have to testify as though they had seen. So he switches uh, uh, reality on them there. And then he said, it all, after all amounts to simply this, that by faith or imagination they saw the plates. Well, there you are defining yourself uh, out of pursuing the witnesses further. Because Booth says in 1831, faith equals imagination non-reality, and Burnett says, uh, Martin Harris said he saw in a vision, which means, or imagination. Well, so much for that. If you don't want to hear the evidence, stop at that point. All right, I'm going to uh, go to another document. I'm going to come back to this document and maybe, maybe deal with it a little bit more. I'm going to switch the uh, subject to the eight witnesses. And the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon uh, said that they had handled, word is hefted, it's interesting because uh, 1828 it probably had the connotation of measuring a weight, in other words estimating the weight of something you're lifting. Uh, they saw the curious characters, that had a connotation in a generation that knew Latin better than we do. Cura in Latin is care, and uh, 
curious actually has a sense uh, as one of its senses in uh, in uh, 19th, 18th century of uh, being carefully made, made with care. And so they said, we saw those engravings, we looked at them carefully, saw that they were made with care, lifted the plates, turned over the, turned over the leaves, etc. Right now, uh, this is what Burnett says about that experience, and I want you to keep in mind what I said about first and second hand. Because he says, Martin Harris said, that uh, he saw the, the plates only with his natural eyes in vision, uh, never saw his plates with natural eyes only in vision or imagination, that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but they were persuaded to do it. Well, there's a, a lot of ways to interpret that. One of them is that they never saw the plates at all, others that they saw the plates in a vision, and didn't really handle them, and uh, they were persuaded to make that statement. Well, I'm not sure that the eight witnesses made that statement. All eight of them never made that statement. I got something like 60 uh, times when those witnesses say, essentially, yes, what I wrote in the Book of Mormon was true. And I'm told by some of the books on this subject now, oh, well, those statements are just uh, pro forma, uh, public statements, and we have to, 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 to go find what really happened. Well, you know, that's like you're telling your teenage kid, what part of no do you not understand? Uh, what part of hefted and, and uh, uh, seeing the curious car characters don't you understand? And John Whitmer, uh, one time when he was asked, Joseph III did this, uh, wrote to him and said, uh, I want you to reiterate your testimony of, the, of seeing the plates. And, and uh, according to uh, the family, John Whitmer wrote back and said, I'm not going to reiterate my testimony because I never, uh, never quit bearing it. <laughs> In other words, go see what I've said before. And uh, he, uh, another missionary came to John Whitmer and he wrote this, that what I have said in my testimony was true, is true, and will be true for eternities to come. So those men said they stood by their testimony. And so the testimony said they saw and handled. And I'm supposed to believe on this second-hand statement of a very uh, hostile uh, and angry man in Kirtland that Martin Harris said the eight witnesses uh, admitted that they didn't see or they only saw in a vision. Well, another part, uh, 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 this latest book that I mentioned called Joseph Smith, uh, that is uh, doing a subjective job of, of uh, reducing the Book of Mormon to his uh, personal experiences while he's translating the Book of Mormon. Uh, that book says, well, the eight witnesses, uh, while this is hearsay, nevertheless, uh, Martin Harris knew the eight witnesses, knew them well. What an irrelevant statement. I mean, the question is whether you can look at that statement and believe that it came from the eight witnesses and if you said well nevertheless Martin Harris knew the eight witnesses well what does that have to do with it can we really believe that any one of the eight witnesses made the statement it's, it goes totally contradictory to everything else they said alright so I'm uh, passing by uh, the Peter Burnett uh, letter and I hope I've given it a decent funeral uh, let me take the other 
biggie that is used by both Vogel in his analysis and Palmer in his book. I just want to say something about Palmer. I wasn't going to make this personal. It's still an issue. I'm not, I don't know him. He's probably a fine person, etc. Uh, <laughs> we got somebody from the George Bush campaign down here. <laughs> okay. Um, Palmer does about 20 pages and then he has a statement saying, now let's look at the first-hand statement and he quotes what the eight witnesses said. Well, in the meantime, in those 20 pages, he's given you uh, a script of what they saw. They somehow go into a cave in the Book of Mormon and see the plates. It has nothing to do with their statements. And so this is absolutely developing a counterfeit story and telling you that that is history. Okay, now, uh, back of all this is, uh, uh, is a sta statement of John Whitmer. And he is talking to uh, Theodore Turley. And Theodore Turley is uh, one of the church agents left in far west Missouri in 1838. And uh, he goes into a home to transaction some business and there are several people that are leaders of the uh, Old Settlers Party. They're ridiculing him and abusing him verbally. And John Whitmer comes in and does the same and Turley says, well, I don't know about uh, this because uh, he said, some of you here say that you saw and then you apparently say you didn't see and John Whitmer picked it up and said you hit at me and then this is what Turley reports now this is a memoir in Nauvoo that Turley writes down uh, four years after the fact you're trusting his memory but this is what he says um, he, he said I call on you John Whitmer to say you say Coral is a moral and good man I want to quote Coral in a minute do you believe in him when he says the Book of Mormon is true or when he says it is not true? And uh, he said, Whitmer asked, do you hint at me? Turley replied, if the cap fits, you wear it. All I know, you have published to the world that an angel did present those plates to Joseph Smith. I open the Book of Mormon, that isn't what it reads. It reads that he saw the characters and hefted the plates. So Turley thinks that John Whitmer has testified to an angel. It's got to get into the mix here some way. Whitmer replied, I now say I handled those plates. There was fine engravings on both sides I handled them. Well, that is exactly what Whitmer said in a dozen other very well-recorded statements that he both saw, handled, and lifted. And then he said, they were shown to me by a supernatural power. Well, if you want to be a good proof texter, and these people are, they pull out supernatural power and say, aha, that's the subjective experience. They, didn't, they weren't really handling, that's the giveaway. Well, again, do you believe the 95% or the 5%? Now, Turley, in reporting that, may be reporting John Whitmer's language because John Whitmer had been a scribe for the Book of Mormon. And it's so interesting to me that in one other interview, it's by My Myron Bond, John Whitmer said, as we were translating, I felt a supernatural power. When John Whitmer wrote his uh, 
editorial uh, farewell in the Messenger and Advocate in 1836. He said, I handled the plates. I want the readers to know. I looked at the plates. I handled the plates. And I know they're translated by the power of God. Well, he felt the power of God, which was a supernatural power. And that may be John Whitmer's language. And that may be the issue. That he felt such a spiritual force when he was translating the Book of Mormon and when he actually had the privilege of lifting the plates, that he would say that. But it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. I mean, it's silly to even talk about that uh, in terms of, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, the evidence we have. But uh, you, 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 do, you, you do have, uh, in John Whitmer's statement, the misconception of the interviewer that he'd seen the plates and maybe the tenants and obviously the tendency of the interview to want to make seeing the plates uh, and something more I mean I didn't restate that correctly the interviewer said he had seen an angel in the plates misconception and some of that misconception may be creeping into that interview it's the only one we've got where he says that uh, there was a supernatural power because the interviewer wants there to be more than just handling the plates. Well, I did a little article, uh, I'm not asking you to read it, but I'm just using it as an exhibit, uh, called Personal Writings of the Witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And those personal writings are impressive, whether it's Hiram Smith, whether it's John Whitmer, whether it's Martin Harris, uh, whether it's D David Whitmer. They say, we saw. It's, it was not an illusion. David Whitmer's most famous statement about that is uh, his so-called interview with John Murphy who, from a nearby uh, town in uh, Missouri called Polo. And uh, John Murphy had been a uh, Protestant missionary and he came in with some sophistication to try to take David apart, Whitmer apart on this. And he published a statement saying that David Whitmer said, well, it was like the Methodist, John Murphy asked him a series of questions and got him to say yes. It was similar to the experience of the Methodists when they uh, get up in a, in a testimony meeting and say they know that, that Christ is the Savior. And he said, so that's all it is. And, and of course, that's, that's the trap because something is like something else doesn't mean that it should be reduced to something else. Because something was a vision doesn't mean that it is less than reality, it's a vision of greater reality. And uh, every one of these witnesses of the Book of Mormon, whether the three or eight, are consistent. A lady asked me did they, this morning, did they really substantiate their testimony? There is not one reliable uh, record where uh, they denied that testimony. All three of the witnesses bore that testimony in their deathbeds. And in this case of John Murphy, David Whitmer issued his own statement in 1881, published it in the newspaper, issued it as a pamphlet, incorporated it in his 1887 uh, address to all believers in Christ, saying, if you didn't understand me now, then I hope you'll understand me now. It was no deception. It was real. So I would just like David Whitmer and the other witnesses to respond to those uh, criticisms. They do, th do that very well. And so I would say these witnesses are capable, they're perceptive, they're intelligent enough to know whether they were the victims of deception. They were motivated to expose if there was a conspiracy. They did not. And I think the whole issue 
is an issue of speculation versus documentation. And if you don't believe that, I will just show you the counter explanations that are laced with possibly and it perhaps happened this way. And if somebody isn't any more sure of his ground than that, I'd like to stay with the witnesses that are sure of their ground. And uh, I'd like to come back to Section 17, which Ezra Booth uh, said it was the giveaway. They were supposed to have faith to see these objects. And the first uh, verse in Section 58 names the objects, uh, five of them, plates, uh, sort of Laban, interpreters, etc. David Whitmer was cross-examined and examined, and, and even though Joseph Smith even in his record doesn't say that all those objects appear, you get any one of the witnesses in, in terms of detail, and they go into that detail and they verify the, the revelation in a remarkable way. And the revelation includes this statement saying, they will testify that my servant Joseph will not be destroyed. And I feel these witnesses are a powerful support to the prophet Joseph. Not only did they, did Joseph have visions, they had a similar verification physically and spiritually. And there is nothing that I have found that would make, uh, feel, uh, make me feel a bit to the contrary, intellectually or spiritually. And I guess I should bear that testimony of my whole personality involved in this. It, and I have looked for whatever contradictions. I made up my mind early. If they were there, I'd find them. I haven't found them. I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Why in their personal statements do the eight witnesses consistently use the formulaic language that they saw and hefted and handled rather than using other language or giving greater detail? Doesn't this suggest a conspiracy? Well, I come back to this issue where John Whitmer said, if you doubt what happened, if you want, if you want my testimony, go read it. Uh, I don't see hefted as formulaic. I think that's, as I said, uh, a very specific uh, uh, term of the period, meaning they tried to estimate their weight, uh, whether it's William Smith uh, estimating the weight when he got uh, handled the plates in a sack or the tofrock in the house when Joseph brought him home, or Martin Harris estimating the weight as he held the plates in a box. 40 to 60 pounds is, is basically, basically what anybody who lifted the plates say. And I'm not aware that anybody ever used hefted except in the statement. I don't see that as formulaic. That's a quick answer. Um, Grant Palmer writes in his book that the witnesses' credi credibility is lessened because of their writings willingness. or willingness to follow strang. Uh, because of uh, no similar weight because of Strang's similar claim to witness, witness experience, would you comment? All right, I looked at uh, what Palmer had said. He closes his chapter on the, on the Book of Mormon Witnesses with the te testimony. I've forgotten whether he uses both testimonies, but Strang put out two books. One was the Chronicles of 4E, and that was the original set of plates. And uh, one person who was near Strang claimed 
that uh, they bored into the ground on, on a lateral direction so that the earth wouldn't be disturbed as they dug vertically under the tree, and they found the plates under the roots. And so they've been planted from the side instead of the top. But anyway, um, I probably have the world's greatest ex expert as my uh, research assistant right now, Rob Jensen, uh, on Strang. And uh, I've told him, if you ever join the Strangites, that my salvation is doomed. <laughs> because, uh, because of my files, he's been very interested in it. And I've, I've got all the books that are out of print. And, and he has, he has wor worked with the Strang newspapers. And right now, he proposed, and I'm not, I hardly ever do this with my research assistants, because I don't like to uh, capitalize on somebody else's effort. And he said, I want to write this article with you. And I said, well, you can write it yourself and credit me in the footnote. He said, no, I want your judgment too. But what we have done is create a file on every one of the Strang witnesses. And uh, uh, there, there are eight, I haven't got it straight, there are probably eight and six, I think it adds up to 14. There are eight, eight no, it adds up to 11. I, I actually, Strang imitated the 11 witnesses of the Book of Mormon. But some of them saw the plates of Vori, and, and uh, there are pictures of, of uh, those plates, and we know that they were around, floating around in a Colorado house. And uh, when you look at the pictures, uh, they don't look like anything that couldn't have been manufactured. But Strang uh, claimed to get a translation, saying there'll be uh, somebody in the latter days that finds these plates, that kind of a thing. And then uh, he wrote the Book of the Law of the Lord, which is a long, boring uh, description of how the church should be organized and run. And that supposedly came from plates, and there were witnesses to those plates. So they never claimed that they saw an angel. They did claim that they saw plates. We do uh, know that there were plates, and for all... They could be manufactured. The Book of Mormon plates could be manufactured. Dan Vogel thinks they have to be tin because somebody said that they uh, were uh, about the thickness of tin when they felt them through the cloth. So uh, Vogel's approach is that you've got real plates because so many other people held them and felt them through the cloth, but you don't have real, real plates. Uh, to me, that inverts reality because the witnesses said they saw, and he said, We don't believe that, but we'll believe the people that felt through the cloth. But anyway, uh, three of, of the 11 w witnesses of Strang left the church and became very hostile enemies. And the, bit, the most telling thing is that none of these Strang witnesses uh, even comment on it afterward. It seems to be a trivial uh, non event in their lives. Okay, I've got to quit. Do we, the church, have originals for the signed statements of the witnesses, both the three and the eight? The, you remember that the original manuscript to the Book of Mormon was put in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo House, and most of it rotted away. Uh, people in this audience can give a better statistic than I, but anyway, 30% roughly uh, is, is still here. And so, uh, as in... Greek manuscripts, gospels that I'm aware of. It's the first pages and the last pages that the insects get, and the middle middle is intact. And that's uh, somewhat true with the Book of Mormon. But we don't have the testimony of the witnesses, which was at the end of the Book of Mormon, and is at the end of the printer's manuscript. 
Uh, so in the original, we don't have any signed testimony of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, either three or eight. But we do have the, the printer's manuscript where in Oliver Cowdery's hand, we have the testimony of the three and the eight, which is, gives me a little uh, boost because I love Oliver and he signed his own testimony in copying the testimony of the three witnesses in the printer's manuscript. So are we to understand that every claim or assertion that one of the witnesses denied their testimony comes from a secondary or hearsay source? I think so. I don't know of an exception. You can't find anything where any of them wrote uh, uh, that they denied their testimony. All, uh, John Whitmer uh, w was uh, written, he wrote to a man that he called Mark Forrest. Uh, the, man, the man is Mark Forskett. And uh, uh, John Whitmer wrote to him in about 77. John Whitmer died in 78 or 79. And he said, I knew most of the eight witnesses that related to him, Hiram Page is his brother-in-law, than his brothers. And he said, I've outlived them all, and they all bore their testimony even to the end, as I bear my testimony now. That's John Whitmer's own writing. Uh, there is no first-hand statement or responsible interview with anyone. And I'm not just manipulating that word responsible. I'm talking about somebody that re reports anything accurately. Uh, you've got rumors about them denying their testimony. You do not have anybody saying directly they denied their testimony. And the closer you get to the witnesses, the, the less that kind of a comment is ever made. Because the, David Whitmer said, people have known me all my life in this community, and they know I have never denied my testimony. Can President Hinckley use the seer stone to receive revelation today? Uh, where's President Hinckley? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Brother Sperry claimed he saw it, he looked in it, and he, he didn't get a revelation. Is, which, you know, might be the bottom line. The, is the Spirit really working with you? Is the power of God that John Whitmer talked about really there? Is faith overemphasized to the point of ignoring knowledge, reason, and logic? Uh, where's my friend Davis Bitten? He's taught at the University of Utah all of his life. What's your answer to that, Davis? Are you here? He was... There he is, yes. Could I read the question to you? Is faith overemphasized to the point of ignoring knowledge, reason, and logic? Now, David is, Davis is, has taught medieval history, intellectual history, uh, uh, is associated with uh, people with and without faith at the University of Utah. What's your response with, to an, a, a, a question like that? Did you all hear that? Two oars work better than one. Uh, I just passed a, I just passed an eye examination, much to my chagrin, because I went in thinking, well, he'll, uh, my aunt, my mother had bad cataracts, and I'll see better and not need glasses. So I went in thinking, good, I'm going to get it, and and the man told me I didn't, I, I didn't need the cataract operation. I said, why? He said, because you can see too well. Well, what he doesn't know is that uh, I am a very intuitive and good guesser because I go down that line and uh, I, I follow my hunches and I follow my sight both. And uh, all I can say is that uh, if, if you don't have faith, you're just going to sit in your own room and do nothing. 
get up and get with it and see the world and believe something out there and check whether it's there. And the Book of Mormon witnesses have got their testimonies out there, read and see. Aside from the last 116 pages, was the Book of Mormon translated with the Urim and Thummim or strictly from peering into a hat and the words appearing from a seer stone? I understand Emma. Emma, Martin, Harris, Oliver Cowdery all say the prophet did not translate directly from the plates. Well, I don't know where Oliver Cowdery says that. Um, Samuel Richards interviewed him in 1848 uh, because Oliver serendipitously uh, knocked at his door in a snowstorm and, and Samuel Richards spent two weeks with him. It's a very late statement of Samuel Richards after 1900, but he said he, said he did work with, directly with the plates. I keep looking for this. Uh, ask Matt Brown afterward, but because he's, he's looked carefully at all these accounts. But anyway, there's no account where Oliver Cowdery denies that Joseph Smith utilized the plates. And Emma says in her interview with, in 1878 with Joseph Smith III, her, her son, that the plates were covered with a cloth by Joseph as he translated. And I, you know, I keep thinking, if, if, the plates are, if the plates are in the room and the plates are preserved, why isn't he using the plates? Well, if he looks at the characters, he doesn't know any more than he does if he looks in the Urim and Thummim. So apparently that's the answer. And I think as I read, as I hear the tape on Matt, that that's the conclusion that he came to. Uh, Emma says in her letter to Mrs. Pilgrim that uh, Joseph had the Urim and Thummim taken away from him after the 118 pa 116 pages were lost and then he used the seer stone after that. I don't know whether to believe that because Oliver Cowdery uh, said in a, court, uh, in a court case as reported by A.W. Benton in uh, 1830, one of the two 1830 trials, he said Joseph Smith had two stones and he used those. Uh, they looked something like spectacles and he used those in translating the Book of Mormon. And even though, even though he's this, on the second half of the translation of the Book of Mormon, as it were, he's using the language of two stones. So that's a question that I honestly can't answer. I don't think Oliver Cowdery denies that Joseph used the plates. Emma says they were standing, sitting on the table at the time she translated, and that's an interesting thing. She didn't translate very much, and she wasn't present at the present translation. And Martin Harris says that he, uh, in the Palmyra period, that he sat, sat on a table and, and there was a screen between the two writers. Uh, if you read Matt Brown's book, he shows that that isn't true in the Whitmer translation, but it would probably was true in the Palmyra translation. So there might be multiple answers to that question, and I, can, I told you what I know, and I better quit. Thank you very much. Thank you.